children there now. <clears throat> uh, for those of you whose kids stay in the service, they are, again, most welcome here. If they get a little fussy, you can take them out for a minute, get them settled down, come back in, but we are happy that they are here. <clears throat> We've been working through our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, again, for quite a while now, and we are on the chapter, as it rela- chapter 13, <coughs> as it relates to the doctrine of sanctification. And this morning we see paragraph 2 say this, the sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it's never completed in this life. Right, so if you ever thought you were going to arrive at a point of being sinless this side of eternity, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. <clears throat> Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Right, And so and we would be naive to think that this side of eternity we are not in a Uh, that we are at peace, but we are in fact still at war, remaining corruptions, the Spirit living inside of us with the deeds of darkness. But with that said, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark? The Gospel of Mark chapter 11 is where we are again this morning, and we're going to look at uh, verses, specifically verses 20 to 26. So Mark Chapter 11, verses 20 on through to verse 26. And John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote these words. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he'll have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, When you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Verse 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. God, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to hear it. By the power of your Spirit, God, that you would help us to apply it by the power of your Spirit. And God, that through it, you would exalt Christ to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I included this part of the passage in what I read to you last week. But but this is obviously the part that I ended up largely Uh, almost entirely neglecting, but we have Jesus instructing the disciples on faith and on prayer, which is a a theme throughout this this whole section here, and on forgiveness. And and this comes on the, 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 the heels of the disciples noticing that the fig tree that Jesus cursed had been dried up to its roots. 
Uh, and, and last week after I uh, preached this, one of you remarked to me about uh, how uh, the fig leaves were what Adam and Eve used uh, to, to try and, and cover themselves after they had sinned, right? After uh, the curse had entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam. And, and this individual uh, called uh, what Jesus, the second Adam, did to the fig tree here is the cursing of the curse, which I... I, I really uh, liked that, that, that summary statement. Seth Dean gave that to me, but I wanted to share that with you because I, I do think it's a, a good, crisp summary statement, and it's a, another dimension, really, to how we can look at this historical event. One of the, the, the church fathers did this very thing. Um, Cyril of Jerusalem said something similar in the 300s. He said this, "'Remember at the time of the sin of Adam and Eve, they clothed themselves with what? Fig leaves.'" That was their first act after the fall. So now Jesus is making the same figure of the fig tree the very last of his wondrous signs. Jesus, as he was headed toward the cross, he cursed the fig tree, not every fig tree, but that one alone for its symbolic significance, saying, may no one ever eat fruit of you again. In this way, the curse laid upon Adam and Eve was being reversed, for they have clothed themselves with fig leaves. And so I thought that that was, again, just... um, helpful. But, and we're going to return to how, you know, the fig tree and how it relates to the, the, the teaching of Jesus. But I wanted to just set that, you know, before, before you this morning as we're looking at our text. But, but going back to the text, right, we, we see in the opening verses that, that Peter points out that, that the fig tree that, that Jesus uh, cursed, the, the fig tree that Jesus judged, had withered away. And as is custom for Jesus to do, we've seen this time and time again in our journey throughout the Gospel of Mark together, he, he teaches the, the disciples, right? That was the aim of uh, all along. He wanted to teach the disciples. And the subjects, and they're all interrelated that he's teaching about, are faith, prayer, and forgiveness, okay? Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. And I've titled my sermon this morning, Powerful Weapons, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Powerful weapons, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Because as we, by, by, by the strength of God's might, right, thinking Ephesians chapter 6, as we, by the strength of God's might, seek to cultivate these in our lives, faith, right, prayer, and forgiveness, we can spiritually flourish despite our circumstances, okay? We can spiritually flourish despite our circumstances. We can flourish despite everything that is outside of our control. We can flourish despite all the fiery darts of the evil one, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. In other words, we can flourish in the midst of this raging, unseen battle that's going on in every one of our lives, Think about the context of our passage again. We're, <clears throat> we're on the, 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 the final stretch as it relates to the first advent ministry of Jesus. And kids, you've heard me say this before. When I say first advent, I mean him coming the first time and doing everything that we know that Jesus did. He's coming again. There'll be a second advent, but we are talking about the first advent. But we're on the final stretch there. His arrest and his crucifixion are near, and he's preparing his disciples for what's to come. Right? He's preparing his disciples to stand firm despite 
opposition in life and opposition in ministry and to make real advancement as it relates to the gospel of God. Right? These disciples, they, they would, and, and we know the story, right? Those of us who have been in church culture for any length of time, these disciples, they would initially scatter because of fear, right? But the Lord, by his strength, he would restore them and he would embolden them. And as a result of that, as a result of him restoring them, as a result of them repenting of their fear, and as a result of, 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 of going, right, every single Christian since the first century is a benefactor. Every single Christian since the first century is a benefactor, right? These disciples that Jesus so faithfully taught, they grew, right? They, they, they increasingly became good stewards of, of what the Bible calls the good deposit that was entrusted to them. And by good deposit, meaning the good deposit of the gospel, right? And the result of that has been gospel advancement for 2,000 plus years, right? And this morning, we are the ones, you and me are the ones that have been entrusted to be stewards of the good deposit of the gospel, right? We are the people who, who live in light of Christ's resurrection and of Christ's ascension in light of Christ's authority, in light of Christ's lordship over everything. And, and we too have trials to greater and, and lesser degrees, much lesser than those Christians in the first century, right? Much lesser perhaps than our brothers and sisters who have suffered throughout the ages, much maybe lesser than those who are presently suffering in other parts of the world. But we have hardships. We have trials. We have our own thorns in the flesh, right? We battle with our own remaining sinful corruptions. And although the head of the serpent was crushed through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our enemy is still a real one. He's still a real one, one who, along with fallen angels, right? We call them demons, right? Seeks to discourage us, seeks to, to tempt us, and seeks to accuse us, seeks to divide us, seeks to prevent us from delighting ourselves in the Lord or, or the, the joy of the Lord being our strength. He wants to prevent us from making any sort of spiritual progress. Yet, we have weapons for warfare. And these aren't the only weapons of warfare. Perhaps there are some other ones that come to your mind. Perhaps Ephesians again, chapter 6, has come to your mind already. But our text mentions three here, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. If you're taking notes, and kids, if you're looking on with your mom and dad, the first thing you can write down is this. The object of our faith is the triune God and is made possible by the gospel of God. <clears throat> the object of our faith is the triune God and is made possible by the gospel of God. Look back at our text together, starting in verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, quote, Have faith in God. Okay, stop there for a moment. It's not lost on me that this passage has been widely abused and, and widely 
taken out of its proper context. And the logic that I think leads to its misinterpretation, it goes like this. If Jesus just spoke to a fig tree and cursed it, and then he taught his disciples about casting mountains in the sea, then isn't it appropriate to conclude that Jesus is saying that his disciples could literally move mountains in the same way Jesus literally cursed the fig tree? And here's what I want to say to that. I can see why people connect the dots that way, right? I I don't want to pretend that that's just some far-fetched connection. However, it's missing the point of the passage and the interpretation. It doesn't harmonize with the rest of Scripture, right? But just in our text alone, let me give you two things that we need to help shape our thinking on this so we don't walk away thinking of our God as some cosmic butler to our wants and our whims, okay? The first is we need to keep in mind what the tree, fig tree represents, it, it represents a lack of fruit, a lack of true faith, which is the result of sin. Right? This is the point of the fig tree. So genuinely, I think we need to see this as a visible parable, see this historical event as a visible parable. Jesus literally judged the fig tree, but he did that to teach a spiritually enduring lesson. So we need to simply catch the tone and the intent of Jesus' teaching, right? He gave them a visual representation of a lack of faith, something that would stick with them, and it did, right? And then he interpreted it for them, and he used mountains to teach them further, but there's a second thing here that ties it together, and it's, the point, it's our first point. Before Jesus begins to speak about mountains being cast into the sea, he says in verse 22, have faith in God. <clears throat> have faith in God. Right. If the fig tree was a lack of true faith, okay, if the fig tree was a lack of true faith, its opposite is faith in God. Okay, if the fig tree was a lack of true faith, his opposite is faith in God. In a way, Jesus is saying, don't be like the, the fig tree that from afar looks green, looks like it's flourishing, but a, upon a closer inspection, it's an imposter, it's a counterfeit, and it's going to wither and die. Instead, be like a fig tree that produces figs, and I'm borrowing this language from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, in season and out of season. Both when times are favorable and when times are not favorable. Both when it's popular to do Christian things and when it's not well looked on to do Christian things and to have faith in God. So Jesus is sort of interpreting this visible parable in his comment, have faith in God. And this means that our hope our happiness, our delight. And I know that what I'm saying is difficult. It's difficult in my own life. But our hope, our happiness, our delight, it's not in people. It's not in circumstances. It's not in ourselves. None of that, primarily. Our faith is not to rest in anything or anyone but the triune God alone. Right? Our faith should not be in religious rituals like the religious leaders of the day that Jesus judged. Right? Our faith shouldn't be in good health. Our faith shouldn't even be in our own repentance because when you sin against your God of good works, that God falls to the ground. Our faith shouldn't be in our faithfulness. We don't put faith in faithfulness because when you aren't faithful... 
right? Your God withers. The object of our faith is the triune God, right? And this is made possible by the gospel of God. We are fruitless. You and me are fruitless. We are idolaters apart from the intervening work of God alone. And that's, again, every one of us apart from Christ Jesus. Yet Christ, rendering a judgment on fruitlessness, get this, was himself judged by the Father for our lack of fruit. Right? He received judgment on the cross. And we, you and me, in this unfair exchange, receive the fruitfulness of Jesus. These are important connection points important connection points for us to make in order to rightly interpret this passage. Commentary Matthew Henry says this, The faith that Jesus speaks of here, it justifies us and so removes mountains of guilt never to rise up in judgment against us. It purifies the heart and so removes mountains of corruption and makes them plain before the grace of God. Another reformer, Calvin, says this, the general encouragement is placed first to have faith in God and then follows the promise that they would obtain by faith in God whatever they asked from God. To have, in fa- to have faith in God means to expect and to be fully assure- assured of obtaining from God, get this, whatever we need. But as faith, if we have any breaks, if we have any faith, it breaks out immediately into prayer and penetrates into the treasures of the grace of God, which are held out for us in the word of God in order to enjoy them. So Christ adds prayer to faith. For if he had only said that we should have whatever we wish, some would have thought the faith was presumptuous or too careless. And therefore Christ shows that those only are believers who, relying on his goodness and promises, go to him in humility. And so the object of our faith is God, and it's made possible by the gospel of God. And, and with our faith fixed squarely on God, we go naturally to Him in prayer, which gets to the second thing that we should see this morning. Faith in the triune God shapes our prayers. Faith in the triune God shapes our prayers. It's not that it should shape our prayers. Right? Faith in the triune God will shape our prayers. It will shape our prayers. It, it will increasingly shape our prayers, right? Our, our prayers will continually conform into the will of God if we're praying in faith. Look back, start with verse 22. Jesus said to them, have faith in, a, in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be <clears throat> removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, right, which is a, faith, a faithless prayer, but believes that those things he says will be done, he'll have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. And again, Jesus teaching them an enduring spiritual reality. Right? Something, so he, he, he's teaching them something that's true for Christians in every age. And, and I think that Jesus labored here to tell the disciples about the potency of prayers that are shaped by faith in Him, shaped by faith in the Lord. Right? They, they were seeing, the disciples, they were seeing, and they were going to see a lot of visible resistance to the message that Christ is Lord. 
they were going to see a lot of visible resistance. First, they would see it in themselves. They'd see the resistance in, the, in themselves. Perhaps um, uh, they would feel it. They would feel the resistance. And, and anytime you try to make true spiritual progress, it's going to be met with spiritual resistance. Anytime you try to make spiritual progress, it's going to be met with spiritual resistance every single time. Right? They, they, they would also, the disciples, they'd see resistance in their families. Jesus initially saw resistance in his family, right? If he wasn't spared from this, why would they, why would we be spared from this? They would see it certainly in their synagogues, right? And, and, and from those that they counted as, as friends, right? And, and they would see it in the broader culture that they were called to be a light in. And in the midst of all of that resistance, right, there would be this temptation to not remember this unseen world, which includes what God's gospel, how God's gospel is leavening the world, right? How it leavens people, individuals. Listen, it's not literal mountains that you and I look at and we're anxious about. Does anyone have a mountain phobia? Maybe there is. And it's not, it's not literal mountains that we're anxious about. It's the mountain of conflict that scares us, right? It's the mountain of suffering that crushes us. It's the mountain of despair that paralyzes us. It's the mountain of our sin that we're tempted to believe hasn't been overcome by Christ. There are mountains all over the place. And often those mountains are are felt in the deep pit of our stomachs, right? And sometimes those mountains are externals that we see but we have no control over. So Jesus, upon his disciples witnessing his power and authority over the fig tree, right after they see the fruitful one speak to the fruitless one, he speaks to them about the potency of faith in God and connects it to prayer. And why prayer specifically? Why prayer? I think it's because prayer is an extremely powerful weapon, and it's often the very thing that we neglect or disregard. Right? It's the very thing that we often think isn't effective. Yet think of a passage you're familiar with, one that I've, I've quoted many times. Perhaps it's come to your mind already this morning. Quote, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. And think about the contents of that prayer. When we ask what the Lord's will is for our lives... We can so often overcomplicate it, can't we? Right? That's, that's the tendency. But think about this. As Jesus tutors us on prayer, we see him emphasize adoration and reverence for the Father. Right? He's, he, he's the one who's holy, and yet us, you and me, we've been given permission to speak to him. We have access to him. And then, and then he gives us a picture of this overall will for people like us who are obsessed with what's God's will for my life. We pray, and when we pray, we're asking him for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. 
Not my kingdom and not my will, but his. Yet get this, here's his will. Right? For his kingdom to come on what? Earth as it is in heaven. Right? Our, our prayers, driven by faith, firmly fixed on the Lord, they're mindful that it's God's will that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth, right? That earth will increasingly reflect heaven despite all of the mountains, despite all of the resistance. And this is made possible by the gospel. Again, you've heard me say this before, but when Christ came, he, he brought his kingdom with him, right? And for the last 2,000 plus years, it's been permeating the earth. It's been penetrating the earth. And though we look out and we see mountains, Faithfully, consciously praying like this should embolden us in our walk with the Lord despite what we see, despite what we face, despite all the resistance, despite all of the conflict, despite our struggles, because we know that God accomplishes all His holy will. Right? He does whatever He pleases. And it's His holy will for earth to reflect heaven, which means He owns everything. He owns everything. Everything belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper is a former prime minister of the Netherlands. He once said this, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence in which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And what of our needs and our anxieties? We see too in the prayer, the Lord is the provider of our needs each day. Give us this day. Give us this day, not yesterday, not tomorrow. You don't have the grace for tomorrow because tomorrow is not promised to you and I. Give us this day. We go to him in prayer daily, knowing that he gives us what we need. He gives us grace. He gives us mercy. He provides for us what we need to get through each day. We're dependent upon him. He's self-sufficient. We're not. We go to him, and he provides what of our sins? What of our sins? Right? When Satan tempts us and then accuses us, what then? Right? We're reminded as we pray that, that God alone is the grantor of cosmic forgiveness. Right? We're reminded that His forgiveness is inexhaustible because it's grounded in the sufficient work of our Savior. We're reminded that the Lord, when we go to Him in prayer, that He alone possesses the power to deliver us from the temptations that we're often plagued with. So with our faith in the triune God, we pray. We pray with faith. We pray expecting that He will answer us according to His will. Another commentator says, Christ demands a firm and undoubting confidence of obtaining an answer. And whence does the human mind obtain that confidence but from the Word of God? We now see then that Christ promises nothing to his disciples unless they keep themselves within the limits of the good pleasure of God. Last thing, if you're taking notes, there's an inseparable connection between forgiveness and prayer. There's an an inseparable connection between forgiveness and prayer. Verse 25 and 26, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Our prayers to the Lord are made possible because we've been forgiven. It's the reason we're able 
to pray. Right? And not because we should have confidence in ourselves, but because God in Christ has granted us forgiveness. Right? If we haven't been forgiven by God through Christ, we have no access. If we haven't been granted forgiveness by God through Christ, we're still in our sins. We're still not reconciled. But if you share union with Christ, you've been forgiven. And for the Christian, that's no, we don't, we don't boast in ourselves for that. We, 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 you know, I've said this before too, we have no bragging rights in the kingdom of God. If it weren't for the grace and the mercy of God, we would be left in our sins. We'd be left in our sins. Now, Jesus saying this in this passage, connecting forgiveness and prayer, he's saying this. If you've been forgiven, how can you withhold forgiveness from others? If you've been forgiven, reflecting on your own sins, reflecting what God has delivered you from, how can you not forgive someone else? Now, what type, what's the type of forgiveness that Christ is talking about here? I think he's talking about our heart posture. He's talking about our heart posture. This part of the passage isn't talking about going to the one who's offended you and reconciling with them. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. There are other passages in Scripture that speak to that, of course, but here Jesus is commending a forgiving disposition, to have a forgiving disposition. And and while reconciliation with others, sadly, isn't always possible, it is the duty of every Christian to have a forgiving heart posture. Right? It's the duty of every Christian to have a forgiving heart posture. And I want to give us just six reasons, and I'll, I'll rattle these off quickly. Six reasons why you should take on the heart posture of forgiveness. Okay, reason one, it's the natural conclusion. Do we have these on the screen? Man, Josh put those up, and I may have tweaked them, and this might not match. We're going with it. <clears throat> it is the natural conclusion of remembering how much you've been forgiven by God in Christ. Okay? It's the natural conclusion of remembering how much you've been forgiven by God in Christ. Secondly, it's commanded by God. It's plainly commanded by God. Right? Third, it eradicates bitterness in your life, which can take root as quickly as the sun goes down. Right? It's unhealthy for you to be withholding in your heart, to be unforgiving in your heart, to, be, to have that sort of, of uh, to, to wear that. It's not good for you. It's poison. So taking on the posture of forgiveness eradicates bitterness in your life. Next, it fosters humility in your life. Right? You want to grow in humility? Take on the posture of forgiveness. Next, it makes you more approachable. Have you ever found... <clears throat> that people aren't, um, you know, people walk on eggshells around you or people seemingly don't approach, you know, don't approach you or they're constantly beating around the bush. Maybe, maybe there's something to that and maybe you should begin to ask yourself, do I have the sort of heart posture that is not one, uh, I'm not, am I sending a message that I'm ready to forgive or am I sending a message that there's condemnation found here, there's judgment found here, there's bitterness found here, there's anger found here, there's wrath found here. And then lastly, it expands your heart to welcome other sinners into your life so that you can be a blessing to them. I've called these powerful weapons, faith in God, 
prayer and forgiveness, and I really believe that they are. They were powerful in the lives of the disciples as they persevered in the faith and were obedient to the commission of Christ, and they're powerful for us too. And all of them will be met with resistance. Right? Expect resistance in the Christian walk. Just expect it. Right? Faith in God's always going to be met with the temptation to place faith in lesser things, even if those lesser things are good things. Right? You're always going to be tempted to pray doubtful, bitter prayers or to not pray at all. Pay attention to that. In a society that lacks forgiveness and exhibits instead judgmentalism, right, taking on the heart posture of forgiveness toward those that have wronged you, it honors the Lord and it genuinely is a key component to your perseverance in the faith. So again, powerful weapons for us to consider together this morning. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for time in it. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to think about it rightly. Help us to apply it to our lives. God, help me to apply it to my life. And Lord, we love you and trust you in Jesus' name.